Before we get started here, let me give you a little explanation for those of you that are listening to the recording. This was an online meeting using Zoom. So we had a few glitches and a few little problems at the beginning. And once we finally got going, I was able to get the meeting on track. We also had, at the very beginning, we we had a report from Sharon G. in southern Mexico. So that will come on, and I didn't start recording until a few couple of minutes into her discussion. So that's why it starts a little abruptly. And uh, then we had somewhat of a typical meeting. I've edited out a lot of the discussion that doesn't pertain to the study. It was a very fun time. In fact, lots of laughter, but you had to be there to enjoy it. So here's Sharon. Guitar. But the problem with the guitar is that it doesn't teach you the melody. It's just an accompaniment. And so I said, look, you need a melodica, this little thing you blow into and play the melody line with. Um, and so I bought a few of those, and I had it planned how I was going to teach a few of these guys from the mountains how to do it. Juan would get them from the central church, bring them from there down to this area, and we could meet at my house or his house. Um, however, that hasn't happened because Juan is busy with the mission and the church, which is the mission. Um, they're building uh, um, structures for uh, camps. Uh, they have a piece of property ready to build on, and they've built partially built um the large building that they would need for meetings and uh, meals and that sort of thing. I don't know if it's the one that's going to have the places to sleep in it. I, I think they'll be have cabins around it for that. But they, we, this has been a dream of the church for a long time. They haven't been able to afford it. Now apparently they're finally making it to be able to build it. And people from the church are there. Actually, some stay all the time for protection for so that the building isn't uh, uh defaced or destroyed. But anyway, Juan is so busy working with that project. Um, Sometimes we have foreigners coming down, but now they probably won't because Americans or Canadians or whatever are probably not going to travel. But the Easter vacation usually was a good time to work on that. But it was also a time that they were hoping to finish it for their Easter camps and conferences that they have for the young people and the children. Uh, that's all been canceled, but we do need to get the rest of this built. Anyway, um, in the meantime, I'm trying to figure out which songs I can write the notes on, because we have a, a, a song book with all the words and the guitar chords, but they don't have the notes or the melody. So I'm supposed to be getting these ready. Well, unfortunately, it turns out that for most of these songs that we sing all the time in our church, um, and we kind of, they kind of start... They teach them to the people up in the mountains. But the problem is there is no music, written music for these songs. And I can't do it because I don't know the songs perfectly like everybody else does. So I thought I would get Eddie, her name is Adriana, and we call her Eddie, um, to play the keyboard, melody on the keyboard, and sing these songs. And uh, then we will record them on a telephone. Even if I have to give them mine, I don't mind. I don't mind not having the interruptions of the phone ringing um, or messages. But we'll record these on a phone. Then Juan can take the phone with him up into the mountain and pass, uh, send these songs to anybody's telephone that wants it. Then someone who is in a small village or a town can take his phone, put it down on the table, punch the song that he wants to sing, and they will hear her playing it and singing it. Meanwhile, the guitar player, he has to stay out of the picture until they learn the melody. But this way, they all have cell phones up there. They don't have Internet or anything like that, but they can um, pass things from one person to another. Once one or two people have gone to the valley and gotten um, the information or the songs from us. So this is kind of my plan. Pray that we'll be able to work it out. Um, it's really difficult when you don't have the music and all that. But um, this oh. lady knows all those songs by heart. She plays. Could I say something? Sure. I could. Um, if you send me somebody's 
singing, I could transcribe them. Well, we don't need them transcribed. If we can get somebody singing them, they don't, they don't read music. And I was just going to have them learn how to play the melodica. And I wrote, I, I printed out and put the little, the notes, the letters of the notes on the melodica, uh, so that they could read, um, what I put on the music, on the words. I put the letters on there. But I did all the Peruvian songs that we did. Yeah, but you've got to sing them. That's that's what we need. That's what we, yeah, I've got recordings of them all, too. Oh, Peruvian songs. Well, okay. <laughs> that's good. But that uh, wouldn't help. But they're in Spanish. It was, oh, never mind, never mind. Yeah, these Go are on. all in Spanish. These are Spanish songs. And they were mostly written by people in the church as the years went by. They collected quite a few songs. They have 238 in the songbook. And I did a new edition of it. Because the last 40 songs didn't even have the guitar notes on them. So the guitarist would just learn it by ear and then play it. However, a lot of these people who play the guitar don't know, don't even have a decent ear for music. You know, they just learn how to put their fingers on the strum loudly. And this doesn't help people who are listening or trying to learn the melody at all. So I'm trying to avoid working with those. But like I said, we've, yeah, we've got to have somebody sing these songs that they want, which is the ones that we have in our songbook at our church. So anyway, that's, that's the plan, but I'll let you know if I can use anything you have. Uh, where they also do use hymns, where they used to use an old hymn book as well. Now it's just put on the, on the screen, on the wall. And uh, so nobody carries, the, hardly anybody carries the songbook around anymore, the actual hymn book, hymn book which is which was only words. I mean, it doesn't have notes or card, um, guitar chords, nothing. So um, that, does, that isn't helpful. But she does have the music to all the hymns. She has all those hymns. I don't know, it's over 400 or something. And so she can play and sing any of those that we want. Or that they want, because they pick what they want up in the mountain. So I, that's it. Unless you have any more questions. Any questions, real quick, and then we'll get into a little prayer time here. Okay, let's open. Father, we do praise you for just uh, the technology that you've given us. Thank you for the ability to to meet. In fact, kind of in a new and fun way, and. Different, we praise you for that, and we praise you for who you are and all your provision and all of the things you provided for us, and particularly your word. As we get into it, we desire that you would uh, illumine us and encourage us and strengthen us through your word. We desire this morning that uh, you speak to us through it and that we would, in fact, be edified and grow in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a quick reminder, and also to kind of enable those that haven't been with us, we're talking about Romans chapter 9. I'll give a little introduction to that, like I've done before, and the emphasis today will be verses 6 through 9. So, true Israelites, what is Paul talking about in Romans 9? And I've been saying... Concerning this portion that there were lots of Jews in the city of Rome in the first century and Jewish people that had trusted in Christ, but obviously a lot of Jewish people that did not. And he's addressing primarily the issue with what about Jewish people? And we'll talk some more about that. So I've been giving you the provision of God's righteousness We spent a lot of time in chapters 1 through 8 that speaks of God providing righteousness for sinful mankind, condemned mankind, mankind that's totally lost in a need of righteousness. God provides his very own righteousness that we may have a relationship with him. And then the latter part, chapter 6 through 8, deal with sanctification. How do we grow to become more and more like him, conforming to the image of Christ. We call that sanctification. So we have a long section there, and we spend a lot of time there. And the next section we call vindication of God's righteousness, because Paul now is going to deal with the issue, well, 
what about the Jews? I thought the Jews were God's people. I thought the Jews had all of these covenants and these promises. And now it looks like Gentiles are able to enter into God's family even, whereas before the nation of Israel, they were the children of God. They were the privileged. They were the ones that had God's family and covenants and promises and all of that. And now, Paul, you're saying that Gentiles can enter in and Gentiles can have salvation. Gentiles can come by simply trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, we thought that uh, Jesus Christ was a false Messiah. What's the deal here? Uh, is this a false religion? Is your gospel a false gospel? Well, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is going to vindicate God's righteousness in that God is perfectly righteous in allowing Gentiles to come into a relationship with himself. And he's also going to explain what about the Jews? In fact, that's the main focus here. So he's going to talk about God's sovereign choice of Israel. In fact, that's what we will get into at the beginning of it, chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, where God sovereignly chose, and the way that he chose, he excluded some. We'll see what happened there. And the blessings now that are on the Gentiles, the blessings, how do we explain all that? Well, God is still dealing with the nation of Israel, so he's going to review how he dealt with them in the past to explain that because of the next section after chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, Israel is under God's discipline. So for this time frame, the nation is rejected. Not every single Jew In fact, not totally, but they are rejected in terms of a particular time frame. We call that the church age, which is a mystery, not revealed in the Old Testament. So Israel is rejected only partially, and God still has a plan. In fact, all of the promises, all of the covenants, all that God has for the nation of Israel, all of that will be restored. So there's a restoration And that talks about Israel's salvation corporately as a nation. And for it to be corporate, obviously there has to be individual people and many. In fact, the majority will believe, the leadership will believe, and there'll be a future time. Now, Paul doesn't give all that detail in chapter 11, but he does clearly state that all Israel shall be saved. The rest of scripture gives us some of the detail concerning what will happen in the future to bring Israel to faith. And uh, we have detail, particularly in the book of Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, other places as well, even the Old Testament, where Israel is assured that God would never abandon them in a total way, but even all the way to before they were even a nation in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. This is even before they're a nation. Remember, they're not a full-fledged nation until they conquer the land in Joshua. So before they're even a nation, somebody's got their microphone on. Hey, Rick. Maddie? You're going to be covering um, verses 6 through 6 through 13. No, 6 through 9. 6 through 9. Who's got their phone on? Or their, uh, not their phone, their microphone. You might mute it. All right, thank you. So you're just doing your introduction and overview right now? Correct. Okay. Yep, we'll get through 6 maybe through nine today. That's the plan anyway, but who knows? We'll see. Uh, yeah, I'm just giving an overview, mainly for Malthusala and Jenny and those that uh, have not joined us. And uh, a reminder for the rest of you. So there is a plan. God has not forgotten the nation of Israel. So chapters nine through 11 are going to explain the situation with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. That is a theology that 
exists in the church today, not, I wouldn't say a majority, but, uh, well, maybe a majority. The, the church has replaced Israel. That's called replacement theology. That is a false doctrine and it should be avoided. I'm still getting a lot of feedback here. So if you can mute your microphones. Okay. The book of Romans, we have an introduction for 17 verses. Now, this is basically the same as what I just showed you, provision of God's righteousness in outline form rather than chart form. We're in chapters 9 through 11. First part of this, I've divided it into three parts, the past sovereign election of Israel. Now, chapter 9, 30 through the end of chapter 10 will be a present situation of discipline. In other words, during the church age, and then there's a future restoration. I don't have that on the slide there. So first five verses we've already looked at. The sorrow of Paul is vindicated, and I use vindication because that's kind of the theme of this whole area, but he's explaining his great, in fact, I've also called it extreme sorrow, because he recognizes that the majority of the nation of Israel, in fact, as a corporate group, they rejected their Messiah and are missing much of what God has available for them, much of the plan of God. And we're in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 6. We won't get through verse 13. In fact, I just want to get through the first part today where God is going to vindicate his word, or Paul will vindicate God's word. And what I mean by that is the issue that is raised concerns promises that are contained in the word of God. And as I get into verse 6, probably more specific promises. And I'll wait till we get there. So he's going to talk in the verses 6 through 9, his choice of Isaac over Ishmael. And what he's going to do is show that the word of God has not failed. That's the beginning of verse 6. But in fact, God is following a pattern of dealing with his people that goes all the way back to the very beginning, all the way back to Abraham. So when God made promises, these promises applied, yes, to his people, but it dealt with a particular line, you might say. And I'm going to expand on that some more as we get into the passage. So he's going to first talk about what is a true Israelite. He's going to identify them. True Israelites identified six through seven. And the context, I've given a little bit of it to you. Paul's extreme sorrow over the setting aside of his fellow Jewish people. And in fact, sorrow that they have rejected their Messiah. And as a result of that, in fact, this will be brought out more in this whole section, 9 through 11. So we've looked at that paragraph. And we also, in verses 4 and 5, he lays out the unique privileges of the nation of Israel. And nowhere in this passage do I see any evidence that any of those privileges have been abandoned, if you will, totally. They've been set aside until God brings the nation of Israel out of their discipline. But the covenants still stand. The promises are still are still there. Nothing has changed in terms of God's attitude towards Israel. The only thing that they're experiencing now is the discipline that he promised all the way back in not only Leviticus 26, but Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And the prophets, prophets also reiterate after Israel is not only in decline, but even the post-exilic prophets explain this as well. And Paul is going to explain further as well. So none of these privileges have gone. Israel still is part of the family of God in a different sense, in a disciplinary sense. Now, that doesn't mean that every Israelite has salvation. And this was never promised, as we'll see from these passages as well. So that's a little bit of the context. So he begins, but it is not as though the word of God has failed and what he means by that is those covenants, those promises, those privileges that are promised and identified in God's word, they still stand. The word of God has not failed. 
God has not abandoned his people. And I think when he speaks of the the word here, he's not speaking of the whole Bible necessarily, although I think it would include the whole Bible. But I think in this context, I think it's a little bit more specific, at least the focus of the word of God. The word of God has not failed. And I've got a little explanation here. I think it refers primarily to the promises that he's going to expand upon in the following passages. In fact, verses 7 through 9 are going to lay out many of those promises. And if you'll just skip down, for example, uh, skip down to, well, he's going to begin by describing in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. I think that's Part of what he's talking about when he talks about the word not failing, it pertains to Abraham and his descendants. And more specifically in verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Comment there? No? Background noise. Okay. Notice he uses the word promise. In fact, he's going to emphasize That word promise, beginning in verse 8, children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And then in verse 9, for this is the word of promise, and now he's going to quote a scripture. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So I think when he's speaking of the word here, he is focusing primarily on the family of Abraham and the account that we have in the book of Genesis and more specifically, the promises that are involved with Abraham. So he's dealing with the Abrahamic covenant, and he's using that as his prime example or prime line of argument to explain how the word of God has not failed, because this is what follows immediately. And next he says, for they are not all Israel... Now, what does he mean by that? All Israel. I think what he's doing here is he is making a distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel. And this is very, very important. In fact, uh, this is what many don't understand in the church age. In fact, at this point, some people use this passage as evidence that there is a true Israel, and some of them spiritualize this passage and say that this spiritual Israel is really the church. If you read it in context, in particularly the context of the entire section here, or division actually, he's making the distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel, but he's talking about Israel not the church. In fact, the church is not in view in chapters 9 through 11. That's extremely important to keep in mind. Maddie, you have a comment. I do. So between verses 6 and 7, it seems like Paul is expanding on the idea of what he says in 6. He's clarifying his idea. So he says, not all they who, um, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel and then he then he says and clarifies it further, nor are they descended from Israel, um, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. So um, so Ishmael, so he's saying Ishmael is not the son of promise, so he's excluded. Um, I don't agree with the spiritual Israel thing, but it sounds like Paul is really talking about Physical descendants. Well, well, the point. Yeah, I'm making I'm making the point that he is dealing with Israel. In fact, I've got a chart. You're you're kind of jumping ahead here, but I I think what he is talking about, Maddie. What I think we're looking at here, he's he's making a distinction between the entire nation, national Israel, and a smaller group. In other words, not all Israel, not all that are within that broader Israel are from that broader national corporate group. And I use the word spiritual because I think what he's going to do is talk about 
the spiritual relationship that people that have uh, the bloodline from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he's going to make those distinctions, they have a spiritual relationship. And I think that's the point that he's making. In other words, there are believers during the church age that are Israelites, a subset of the body of Christ. But he's talking about Israel here, spiritual Israel. Let's see if this is clarified as we go further. Uh, hold that question, Maddie, and see if it doesn't clear clear up with the rest of the passage here. So they are not all Israel. In other words, he's making the distinction within the nation. Those who are descended from Israel, that's a broad group, but not all of them. He's going to deal with those that are not just Israelites. So not all Israel who are descended from Israel, they're not all the same. There's a distinction that God makes. And he's going to make several contrasts in here. And maybe these contrasts might clarify your question, Maddie. And the first one that he makes is not all Israel in this verse as opposed to all that are descendant, descendants of Israel. And I'm going to define Israel here in a chart in a moment. In fact, we'll get to it in a moment. Let's see. Okay, here's the chart that I was referring to earlier. Israel, that is Israel in its totality. And we can represent it by this big circle. This is every descendant of Jacob. In other words, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. This is the distinctions he's going to make in this passage. And at this point, what he is saying within those that are of the line of Jacob or Israel, there is what I'm identifying or calling true Israel. These are those that have entered into a relationship with Messiah. And they would include the early disciples. They would exclude in Judas, obviously. And it would include the early church that was predominantly Jewish. And then later, every Jew that would trust in Messiah, that would be the true Israel. But that's not the church. That is only the true believers within the nation of Israel. Does that distinguish it? And what you need to do is go back and think through, remember in Genesis 25, 19 through 26, that's a record of the birth of Jacob, and that's the passage that deals with uh, Jacob and Esau. And we have Jacob, Yaakov, the, the Hebrew word there. But later on in the book of Genesis, and by the way, he's described, his name means supplanter and deceiver. And one of the first and major incidents in the life of Jacob that's recorded is that issue of basically stealing the birthright from Esau, even though from God's perspective, this was God's plan, but the way and the means was not necessarily God's way. Jacob is a supplanter of the promises and lots of deception, including his mother. But if you remember in Genesis 32:28, Jacob's name is changed to Yisrael, or commonly in the English Israel, meaning God fights. So when we are talking about Israel, we are talking about the descendants of Jacob because the line is going through Jacob. That's the whole point of this whole passage. We'll get into that. In fact, that starts verse 10, where he's going to make that distinction as well in uh, Romans chapter 9. So when we speak of Israel, we're talking about the descendants of Jacob, or you might say the descendants of Israel. And what we're saying here is that the promises to the nation corporately involve Israelites. In other words, those that are amongst Israel. And it does not necessarily pertain to individual unbelieving descendants. Those are the distinctions that he's going to make in uh, in these passages. So keep those distinctions in mind. Distinction between national Israel and you might, if you want the word true Israel, that's the word that we have in the text. I use the word spiritual. Make that distinction and make the distinction that these promises, I think this is the point that Paul is making, pertain to the nation corporately, and may not necessarily to the individual 
unbelievers that reject the Messiah after Messiah came. And that'll be true even in the future when the church is removed. So verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Now he's kind of being a little bit more explanatory in verse 7 to explain what he means by not all Israel and those who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, that that's the distinction. And interestingly, he says they're not all children. In other words, genuine, they don't have a relationship. They're descendants of Abraham, but they're not children, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. And now he's going to show the truth or the reality of, uh, of what he's talking about in the next phrase. And notice the contrast. He's going to contrast here children using a particular word, which would could include uh, infants all the way to even beyond children in a physical sense. But he's using it in this context in a more spiritual, relational sense in terms of being part of a family, being part of the family of God. But not every descendant of Abraham would be considered part of the family of God, if you will. Now, remember, we talked about the word adoption as sons in that earlier passage in, uh, where was it, one of the privileges, in fact, the first one, verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, one word. And I reminded you when we were looking at verse 4 last time, that adoption of sons is the identical same word that he uses in chapter 8 to speak of believers in the church age, believers that have trusted in Messiah, both Jew and Gentile. It has this family idea, the family connotation. But he is saying in verse 7 that not every descendant of Abraham had that distinction. So let me give you the the next contrast that we have in verse 7. Descendants, the Greek word there is sperma. And as you can see, it's related to seed, you might say, or even sperm, uh, literally. The descendants of Abraham, not every descendant of Abraham is necessarily a techna. There's the Greek word for children, which can include in a physical sense, any age, child, even a teenager, and even older, actually. And now he's going to explain, and he's going to quote from uh, Genesis 21, 12, where he's going to make clear it's through Isaac your descendants will be named. In fact, the word kaleo is the word named there. And what that word means, remember we saw that in Romans 8 as well. The word kaleo oftentimes is translated to be called, and it could be in some context called by name or named like it is translated here, and that's how the word is used here. But it's through Isaac that Abraham's, and he's quoting, because God is speaking to Abraham, it's through Isaac your descendants will be named. And the whole idea here, it has that idea of calling as well. Now, it has the literal sense of being identified or named, but it also has that idea, kaleo, of calling. Or it's through this line that God has chosen to create a family and eventually a nation. It's through Isaac. Now, let's review real quickly. We won't have time to look up these passages. But um, if you work... Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, so then the summary would be, just because some are excluded does not nullify God's promise. That's that, the bottom line that, that Paul is trying to make here. That's, that the whole po- that's the whole point. Okay. This is how God's word has not failed. Right. Yeah, very good. Because excluded doesn't mean God hasn't kept his promise. Exactly. And just because the nation during the church age has been set aside, that does not nullify all of the promises. And what he's doing is he's going back to the very beginning, how God had already set some aside 
And we're going to talk about the doctrine of election. I think we have the heart of it here in terms of national Israel. And we won't get into that this time, but maybe the next time or the time after that. So let's review the history. Israel begins with Abraham and, well, begins with God in the the choice, you might even say. God chose Abraham above any other person in any other nation, and he chose Abraham for the purpose of creating descendants that would eventuate into a nation. That is fundamental to the doctrine of election. God choosing, and God is free, and I think that's the whole point of this early part of chapter 9, beginning 1 through verse 29, God is sovereignly choosing and he is free to choose and to do whatever he so pleases. And it actually begins even before Abraham. I think it began in eternity past, the plan of God. But the plan begins with Abraham, God choosing him out of the nations. And he makes a promise in verse 2, that promise pertains to descendants. And I'm kind of focusing on descendants here. The promise actually begins in verse 1 and runs through verse 3. But in terms of descendants, it begins in verse 2. And those descendants are also included in the Abrahamic covenant. And more specifically, chapter 15, 4 and 5, where the descendants are going to be so numerous that you cannot even count them. God uses the illustration and tells Abraham to look at the heavens, and he's not able to even count the number of stars. That's how many descendants he will have. So we have that by covenant. And if you remember, covenants are legal documents where God doesn't have to, but God binds himself legally to perform certain things, and in this context, produce descendants through Abraham. And then we have a compromise. You know, Abraham and Sarah are waiting and nothing's happening, waiting, nothing's happening, no children. Abraham makes a proposal. You know, what about my servant? This is in another context. Sarah makes a proposal. Well, maybe God means for you to have children through Hagar. I've been, I've been barren all my life and now I'm past childbearing age. You yourself are old. Maybe uh, God's intention is through Hagar, and you have the story, verses 1 through 12, of Abraham and Hagar, and, and the story of Ishmael. Well, that's not God's plan. That's not God's intention. In fact, I think it's a compromise, but the compromise is made. And then in chapter 17, the next chapter, we have a reiteration of the covenant, and it focuses in the first eight verses on the descendants And the descendants are going to come not just through Abraham, but through Sarah as well. Then we have a specific promise. And this will be expanded and quoted in verse 9. So so the, the passage is going to go on, but I'll include it on the list here to give the context. In chapter 18, in verse 10. And verse 14, both of them will be quoted and combined in verse 9. We have specific, in fact, two promises. The promise is reiterated that the promise will be through Sarah, and it's to Sarah in that passage. So not only does Abraham have a promise, but so does Sarah. And then we have the birth of Isaac after many years. In fact, Ishmael is all grown up already. In chapter 21, specifically the first three verses, the birth of Isaac. These are all obviously in Genesis. And we have what's quoted here. The choice of the line is going to be through Isaac. And that's the passage that through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That's Genesis 21, 12. And just for reference, here's the genealogy beginning with Terah. Remember, Terah had three sons that are named, Abraham being one of them. Abraham and Sarah uh, are married, obviously. And the reason I put the other parts of the genealogy on this chart is as we go through the line, I'll show you this again in some of the other studies, 
uh, we're going to see that Isaac marries essentially a cousin, and then even Jacob later on marries a, what, second, third, or whatever cousin as well. So this is a very important line that God is using. And specifically, here is the more specific genealogy in terms of what we have in uh, Romans chapter 9. Although Hagar is not mentioned, we do have the promise that is made concerning the line, and the line is through Isaac or Isaac. So that's the more specific genealogy at this point. We'll add to this genealogy as we get into the next passage uh, next time. So that's verses 6 and 7. He's identifying the true Israelites, and he's going to expand upon that, and particularly the true children of God. He's going to focus on, on those that, now he doesn't state it, but those that have made a commitment or have trusted in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's verses 8 and 9. So let's take a look at those two verses. And he begins, that is, in other words, let me expand it a little bit. His here is what Paul is saying, referring back to what he's just stated concerning those descendants within the national group and those that he refers to as children already. Not all of them are children. So now he's going to expand upon that. That is, it is not the children of the flesh And he's alluding, I think, to the incident with Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. So, he's going to expand upon the children now. It's not the children of the flesh. And I think he's referring to Hagar and the incident that uh, I summarized there on the last chart there. That would be the child of the flesh. In other words, this was the compromise. This is the biblical commentary on the divine perspective on Ishmael. It's not a child of faith. The child of faith comes later after God has to reiterate and re-promise and reinstitute a covenant. But it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. And the setting aside of Ishmael. So we have a third contrast here. A contrast between children of the flesh That would be the descendants of Ishmael. They don't have the promise. They don't have the covenants. They're not the children of God. There's a distinction made here. But there is the children of God that he's going to also expand and continue with. So the last part of verse 8, but the children of promise are regarded as sperma. As descendants, there's the same word that we saw before. In other words, these are the true, and we might even say, and this is why I'm identifying them as the spiritual descendants, because in contrast to the children of the flesh, these are the spiritual descendants. The children of promise are regarded as the true descendants. So we have another contrast, children of flesh, children of God, and now we have added to the children of God, children of promise. And I think what he includes there in the idea of promise is not only Genesis 12, but after God institutes the Abrahamic covenant, the promise contained within the covenant of the descendants that would be more than the stars of heaven, it's going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then he's going to quote in verse 9 and expand this word of promise. That's why I see in verse 6, when the word did not fail, as I mentioned when we were there, I think he's speaking in terms of at least specifically this word that is given to Abraham, the word of promise that is part of the covenant. And here we have the, the quotation from chapter 18 that we alluded to earlier that includes a promise to Sarah. And it's in two passages. At this time, I will come. That's the first part there. That's verse 10 in chapter 18. And then he combines it with uh, verse, what was it, 14? Is that the verse I gave you? Sarah shall have a son. So we have a an initial promise, and then we have a second promise that includes Sarah, 
So the promise essentially is given twice. There you go, Genesis 18.10 and Genesis 18.14. So we have reiteration of the of promises. We have a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And within the promise, we have specific promises to Sarah. And we have it somewhat duplicated or given in two forms there. Genesis 18.10 and 18.14 to reiterate what God intends to do. The line is going to go through Sarah. So the promise is given twice to reiterate it, to give assurance. And what we could say is that the bottom line when it comes to God's choosing or God's election, I think the emphasis in this passage is that God's election, broadly speaking, and more specifically in terms of the nation, is not based on physical descent. Now, I think that's specific to Israel. Now, I'm going to develop some of the principles that we can draw from this passage concerning God's election. Some of them may apply to the election that the New Testament describes concerning those that are part of the body of Christ, those that are part of the church. For example, the passage in Ephesians 1.4. But some of these will apply, as in this case, to the nation of Israel. And there are many, many passages in the Old Testament, I'll give you some of them next time, that speak of God choosing the nation of Israel. And even choosing Abraham, there's passages that refer to him. And I think these all are part of this broader doctrine that I intend to develop in some detail that we can describe as this doctrine of election. And there are different categories that I'll kind of lay out for you. So we're going to have, in some ways, kind of a sub-theme. Not only do we have Israel and how God's dealing with them, but a sub-theme, at least in these early verses in chapter 9, the sub-theme of God's election and God's choice, because I think that's at the heart of the passage. The vindication of God's righteousness includes the choices that God made, not only in eternity past, but those choices that work themselves out in terms of Israel, beginning with Abraham himself. And what I started to say is some of these are applicable, I think, to the specific election and doctrine of election as it pertains to individuals in the church age. This one probably does not. This one is probably more more national. In other words, more in terms of the nation. And it's not God's election is not based on natural physical descent. Hey, Ray, can I say something? Sure. Um, so... Can we qualify that statement and say it's not solely based on natural physical descent? That would be a good qualification. Yes. Yeah. Because I, I, because obviously he's making a point that descendants of Abraham, right? And he's talking about Israel and the covenant. Mm-hmm. So he's not totally excluding that physical descent. He's just saying that's not the primary concern. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because Ishmael could say, well, I am a descendant of Abraham. But God made clear that in the passage that we saw earlier that was quoted, that God is making a distinction through Isaac, your descendants shall be or will be called, you could even say. New American Standard translates it, will be named And if you remember when we were talking about calling, there's a close relationship between this concept of election and the calling. I think election precedes calling. If you remember when we were talking about the election that pertains to the body of Christ and the church, I think that election precedes calling. Paul is using words that we've already looked at. He's applying those now specifically to the nation of Israel. And one of the things that we have to, I think, think in terms of, he's speaking corporately throughout this. And he's not talking specifically about the church. He's not talking about necessarily us, unless you have Jewish Jewish blood that goes through Isaac 
and Jacob. So the first principle that I'm bringing out from this passage in terms of God's election, it's not based on physical descent. So we could conclude our study, at least this portion, God's sovereign choice, we're going to see throughout, illustrates his grace, illustrates his grace. And the reason I bring that out is because there's nothing in Isaac that God saw in foreknowledge that caused him to choose Isaac. I think it's a sovereign choice. Isaac is a sinner like everyone else. Now, the sin of Isaac is not emphasized in the book of Genesis, but we're going to see this brought out more so when we talk about Jacob. And Jacob is going to be God's sovereign choice as well. In fact, it's going to be very specific in the next passage that it's not based on anything in man. So this concept of sovereign choice, or you might say sovereign election, is part of the broader perfection of God that we could describe as his grace. And he can bestow it on whom he pleases. And no one has a claim on God's grace. We just simply praise him. And when we speak of the doctrine of election, I I want us to be reminded that it's by grace that God chose even one. Because of sin, all of mankind, beginning with Adam and Eve, in terms of justice, all deserve condemnation, all deserve death, all deserve no grace from God. That is what is deserved. But because God is gracious, he has chosen to choose certain individuals. And we have examples of that going even before Abraham, but in this passage, Abraham. Any comments before we close in a word of prayer? Somebody care to close for us today? Any comments first? Jim McGillivray. Our Father, our God, I I pray that uh, when we get disconnected, we can be reconnected successfully and continue to enjoy the message that you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't know what's going to happen this week. I guess the plan will be for us to try this again. Another closing comment here. We ought to pray through this whole experience that this might wake up people all over the world in terms of their need for Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. And historically, I I don't have all the details, but if you know anything about church history, there are two things that have caused the church to just grow by leaps and bounds. The first one, when the church is persecuted, it grows. But also, when the church has faced historically severe trouble, for example, like viruses or like disease or plagues, you could say, when the church has experienced plagues and other difficulties, that is also a time when the church has grown. So you might pray along the lines that the Lord use this, particularly in our country, to awaken and to bring people into a saving relationship with him. Any last comments before I turn our meeting off? Okay, well, have a, have a good week. Plan on meeting next week, if you can.